Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review, as it will help others to learn about autism stories. Monotropism is a theory that really helps me to understand what I do on a daily basis, and I think it is the same way for many autistic people. That's why I'm honored to have Dr. Wen Lawson and Fergus Murray return to Autism Stories to discuss their website, which is the central resource for learning about monotropism. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Fergus and Wen, thanks so much for returning to Autism Stories. It's always a pleasure and privilege. Recently, I saw a website that was launched that I was very excited to see, and that is monotropism.org. And the two of you collaborated to create this wonderful website. Can you tell me why the two of you created monotropism.org to be a central resource for learning about monotropism? Yeah, go for it because Fergus did much more work. I only you know, added my two pence here and there. Yeah, so there wasn't a central resource, basically. If I wanted someone to learn about monotropism, then there were half a dozen or more different places where I could send them depending on you know, what kind of level of explanation they needed, whether like a short animation or a 10-minute talk or a 15-minute piece that I wrote would connect better with them. So it made more sense to have one site where there were a range of different explanations pitched to different audiences and people could kind of choose what they wanted to look at. Also, the history of monotropism had never really been sort of recounted in in one easy-to-access place. So I kept seeing people sort of referring to it as if it sprung into existence in 2005 with when Dinah and Mike's paper in autism, when my mum, Dinah, was talking about it as far back as 1992. And I think when you you started talking about similar ideas not long after that, right? Yeah, 1993, but in Australia. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's such a a great point that you bring up there wasn't any central resource because whenever I would be talking to people about it I might refer to you know conversations that I've had had with the two of you or other resources out there or I was just like hey just do a google search there really was not like a a place to go Uh, so if someone um, might be unfamiliar with the concept of monotropism what would be some principles or starting points of the theory in helping people understand uh, about this in relation to the autistic experience? Being mono just means really being able to attend to one thing at any one time, including external and internal sensory information. It's like a, a cognitive style, really, that I believe is the default setting for most autistic people, I think the core principles of monotropism or single focused attention 
means that ability to deeply focus on something to to the exclusion of other things which i know can be upsetting for some people but it also makes shifting attention very uncomfortable so that's why it's so important to understand if however another person you know parent teacher partner were to join our attention by request obviously not just barge in i think it's more likely we will be able to move from one thing to the next for example i like being at my computer my partner encourages me to exercise i can ride my static bike in my bedroom and the computer on my exercise bike can record um, speed time cycled you know that kind of thing so i'm i'm moving from from one computer to another getting exercise too it's like i'm staying within the area of my interest if you like so I'm broadening my attention without really shifting away from one thing to another. But I'm sure Fred will add more things. Yeah, so I guess one thing leading on straight from that, it's the broadening of attention. You know, we, we sometimes talk about only being able to attend to one thing at once. And it's probably more accurate to say we, we attend to a smaller number of things than other people. Um, you know, my problem is, in a way, a slightly misleading term because it does imply that there's only one thing. Um, but also, the more you kind of have something mastered, the bigger it, any one thing is in your head. I feel like that's, that's maybe not very clearly explained, but it's like once you fully understand something, you can kind of pull it all into being one concept in your head, right? Psychologists talk about chunking. The more we kind of really have a handle on things, the more things we can handle at a time. The other thing I would add is that having this different attentional style leads very directly to different communication styles. Um, I think that's a really key thing to understand, that a lot of the miscommunication that autistic people suffer from, going in both directions, comes from a different... <laughs> expectation of how communication is going to work um monotropic people are generally better at focusing on just you know one or two channels at a time whereas neurotypical communication polytropic communication assumes that alongside the words people are going to be taking in the tone and the body language <laughs> and the social relations and oh, a bunch of other things it's just this expectation of many layered communication going on at all times which means that there are a lot of misunderstandings where someone thinks that something is obvious or has been hinted at strongly and the autistic person is like that, you never mentioned that uh, <laughs> an autistic person is very direct and says exactly what we mean and other people assume that we're hinting at something else entirely so that that's a big part of it yeah, yes we could talk about sensory, sensory issues as well right so part of oh, it absolutely only being able to attend sensorily to a small number of things. So we tend to work better when we're only using probably one or two of our senses at any given time, depending on how linked up things we are focusing on are. That sort of accounts for quite a lot of autistic differences as well. Just that sensory tendency to focus on only what, where our attention is pointed. But also that kind of works both ways because we have fewer filters running than other people as well. So, you know, because we don't have as many processes running, or well, that's the way that I think of it, as many sort of set processes, 
filtering is active. It's an active process. So if all of your attention is absorbed in one thing, then you don't have as much attention left over for filtering, which can yeah. mean that autistic people can be very distractible. When we're not in full hyper-focus mode, we're likely to have our attention pulled away uncomfortably on a regular basis, especially when we're with people who don't understand how much of a wrench that can be. I think there's also yeah, another sensory thing. I don't know what your thoughts are about this, but autistic people tend to experience things quite intensely, right? And mm. I think that's, you know, our attention being pulled in towards the senses that we're using. And I think that over time, that kind of builds sensitivity. You know, the more that we use a given sense, the more sensitive it tends to become. And I think that this is part of why a lot of autistic adults have real difficulty with loud noises and things. I found that that seems to have got worse as I have got older. Like my, my working theory, and I, more research is required, um, is that we build those neural pathways associated with those senses. And that can be good, but it also can lend, to, lend itself to sensory overload. So also that I think as children, were subjected to a lot more things like school, buses, you know, being around lots of other noisy young people. But as adults, we choose to not be amongst those things if possible. So again, when we're subject to them, I think that our senses tend to be more, it's more painful. It's almost like it overwhelms as a child and you might put your hands over your ears or you might put ear defenders on and stuff but when you become a grown-up you might not bother so much with those things i mean some people will but then that sudden exposure to noise is pretty overwhelming the other thing about that sensitivity i think like you were right earlier about going both ways so i'm absolutely passionate about birds and if we're in the middle of a conversation, if I'm presenting somewhere, I'm walking on the road, my, my head's in other thoughts, a bird, that the sound of the song of the call will pierce everything and overtake. And I'll stop and I'll say, oh, did you hear that? that that's whatever. You know, today I got very excited because we saw a pair of peregrine falcons <laughs> in our town. Very exciting. We won't go there, get caught up. But so there's, there's it works both ways. And being monotropic, capturing all of our attention absolutely means there's no room or attention for other things. And at that internal sense, our interoception sense means we might not notice that we're hungry or we might not notice we need the loo, we might not notice our mood's changing. So regulating emotions, regulating mood can be quite, quite a difficult thing. And it's a lot easier when we're not overwhelmed and we've got a bit of space to connect to those things, especially as you get older. But I think as a younger person, that's, that really is a difficult thing. Now, one of the things that I love about uh, your website, monotropism.org, is sharing the history about how monotropism was developed because I didn't quite, I thought I knew, but I didn't really know the history. So it was great to um, learn about it. And it sounds like one of those important uh, moments, I guess, in, in the history was the result of UN meeting with uh, Dinah Murray, uh, Fergus's mom, and uh, the you know two 
two um, autistic pioneers for sure, meeting for the first time in 1998. I wish I was there in that moment, <laughs> um, certainly. When can you talk about, uh, about that meeting, especially in terms of monotropism and when you can connect with others that have those same kind of focused or intense interests as you do? Yes, I can. As we mentioned earlier, from 1993, I'd been working on building an understanding of autism that seemed vastly, vastly different from what I read in textbooks. All the textbooks, mainly the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, because uh, there wasn't a lot written on autism in general, except really awful stuff. But they talked about deficits, disorder, as well as difficulty. Whereas what I noticed, both in myself, in my son, and in other autistic young people I was meeting, was this tendency for deep focus, being very literal, um, black and white, perhaps missing some of that gray or read between the lines stuff, yes. But it also meant being honest, trustworthy, without guile, dependable, authentic. These weren't things that people were talking about at all. So this, this wasn't what I saw in non-autistic people. They tended to be uh, quite the opposite, actually. They tended to be dishonest, couldn't really trust people. People would say one thing, but mean another. And I, my literalness, I got tripped up a lot by believing people, only to realize that other people read not just the words, but as Fergus said earlier, they read their body language and got to understand the difference between sarcasm and teasing and being put down and stuff, whereas I just believed them. Yet this population, non-autistic population, was said to be the normal ones, and as autistic people, we were not. Uh, so the more I researched and read, the more I became convinced that autism was really a different way of being, of relating, a different way of relating, a different way of understanding the world. And I went on quite a deep dive into trying to understand attention and various resources about that. But anyway, I, I came up with a set of understandings that I wanted to put together for some study at university. I met with a psychologist at the university where I was studying and shared these with her. And we're both quite excited, actually, because it had never been talked about in this way before. Literally, a set of understanding of what was generally typical of the analytic or non-autistic population, and then a set of understanding of what was true of the autistic population. And of course, this is all in general because everybody's different, everybody has their own personality and a different experience of being autistic. Anyway, in 1998, I was teaching from this understanding at a conference in Essex and Diana was at that conference. Um, she wasn't speaking, but she was in the audience and she was very, a very much a friend of Rosemary, the lady that had put this conference on. She came up to me afterwards and she gave me a poem which she'd written because I use a lot of poetry in my presentations. I felt right chuffed, actually. But she also echo, echoed that my work mirrored her own. She gave me her contact details. And, you know, we stayed in touch and, and we were getting together much more often and relating from across borders, overseas. Every time I came, pretty much every time I came back to the UK, I'd stay at Diana's place. I think the first time I met Fergus, I think he was only about 13. <laughs> but I haven't done my maths, but that's what I remember. Um, so we debated, um, we discussed, we talked non-stop. It was our absolute passion. And we pushed further and further 
into an understanding of what this might mean. So that pushed out the borders to see how it impacted, how monotropism impacted on everyday life. And when I met other autistic people and saw in their lives what interest meant to them, because what we began to understand was a very definite interest system of mind that was quite different in how our minds and interest operate as autistic people compared to non-autistic people. The only time that Diana and I had any disagreement, which changed over time, was I really believed that this impacted the sensory world, and Diana didn't at one time really think that way, but that changed over time. And as I said, we debated, we tossed things around, and didn't always agree, but we always agreed on the central tenet of what autism was about. So any time I met people still today who have similar interests to me, it enabled connections in ways that just didn't happen otherwise. We didn't do small talk. What's the point of that? You know, dive straight into stuff that is connecting and understanding to me. And it brings out, for, for other autistic people, when we're together, it brings out a whole world of depth and connection that I think typical people might miss out on, actually. So engaging with us around our interests takes anyone who wants to join us into that place of really quite deep connection. So, yeah, Dinah, I miss. I still feel like she's not really very far away, though. So I'm probably going off question, though, because you have to draw me back. But it was very, 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 very connecting, very special. And that's the way it stayed throughout our entire friendship. You know, something that I've been thinking quite a bit of lot about the last couple of months, and I would love to hear both of your perspectives about this, is that I've realized that my entire day seems to be transitioning from one focused interest to the next. And I started thinking about that, and I started thinking, well, what if I didn't do that? And I thought, I think there'd be a lot of anxiousness and emptiness for me. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering, do you think that's a common experience? Obviously, all autistic people are, are different, um, but we definitely have some things in common. Is that a common experience? And how do you see that um, being a factor in kind of the quality of life for us? You go for it. Uh, I don't know if that's okay. Yeah, um... So, I think we should talk about flow states here. Flow states are something which anyone can enter into. People talk about being in the zone. It's that that idea where you're fully absorbed in something. And I think autistic people need that even more than everyone else, but it's central to people's well-being in general. Like, people who can't access flow states are likely to be much less able to relax and recharge. So, you know, for a lot of people, engaging in their hobbies makes them feel better, right? And a lot of the characteristics of monotropism, the sort of the tendency to get lost in whatever your focus is on, are really characteristics of flow states. So I kind of think that there's something in there that autistic people, monotropic people, are 
prone to entering flow states and prone to feeling particularly antsy if we can't. There's been quite a lot of work on the value for autistic well-being of being able to access our, our so-called special interests, right? our, our intense or focused interests. Taking in school environments, mental health, uh, it's about the way that we think about ourselves as well. So yeah, that that ability to connect with what you're passionate about is a way of forgetting about the stresses of the world for a while. And I think for autistic people, the world is often very, very stressful. <laughs> you know, it's not good for us. We're regularly exposed to sensory environments which are massive stresses, you know, they leave us in a kind of state of high tension. And of course, we're regularly exposed to baffling social situations, especially as kids. But I mean, I think that's never fully stopped for me as an adult. So that needs to be able to switch off all of that and, you know, basically turn off our, our filters and maybe just turn on, like, the way that I think about it is we kind of have one big filter when we're monotopically focused on something in a kind of flowy way where basically we're just not aware of anything else so we don't need to individually filter out all of the noises and the lights and everything it's just all of our attention is there and that is just fundamentally a very relaxing way to be yeah and moving from one interest to another could be thought of i think doug as moving from what's capturing your attention to the next thing that captures your attention and I would yeah, be quite lost in my days if I didn't have those things to move on to. Because I'm an ADHD person as well as autistic and that they commonly go together, I think probably more commonly than people realise, then sometimes I'm absolutely focused on something, but something will capture my attention and pull me away. As I get up to continue with one interest that I'm working on, I spot something on the way and that calls me over and enters my consciousness. I move into that thing and I think, oh God, what I was doing, I've got to get back to that. But sometimes it means I have to almost go right back to the beginning of the other thing and read and focus and capture where I was at that time. I don't hold it very well, which impacts on executive functioning and uh, organizing things. And so my office is not tidy. My office has a little space where I put the computer and I can see the Zoom meetings and things, but surrounded by there's all sorts of things on the floor uh, and taken over. I would love to be able to put things away because that would function better, but I don't have space in my head and life to do both. So I move from one interest to another. I flow in from one state to another, but at times I get quite stuck and I can't move. And it's what we call being it's inertia, so it's sort of an inert, inert place to be, which is quite uncomfortable. I'm dependent on my smartwatch or my phone or other things that I've often programmed to remind me perhaps to it's time to eat or I should drink some water or something like that. So I won't think of those things quite often. So I, I need an, out, an out, outside force to come into my life to help me get back on track. And it's a constant, it's a constant thing as an autistic person who's also ADHD moving from one to another. And I need structure, absolutely. But at the same time, not real good when people impose things or you've got to have lunch at 12 or you've got to do this at that time or I don't do those things real well. 
and that's my personality, my ADHD or whatever, being slightly demand avoidant, all that stuff. Everybody's very different, but being monotropic has a huge impact on how my my life is lived with those other extra things taken on board too. I think it's maybe worth talking a bit more about ADHD, right? Because there's a really interesting relationship Mm. between autism and ADHD. Um, I'm fairly sure that I qualify for for diagnosis as well. Right now I've been on a waiting list for about two and a half years. But I don't really see it as a completely separate thing. I think... Like ADHD tendencies are something which very often happens to people with monotropic brains. Yeah. Because a lot of it is about attention, obviously. Um, you know, they call it attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It's obviously not about an attention deficit. It's not really about hyperactivity and it's not really a disorder, but whatever. Um, <laughs> I think people sometimes call it kinetic cognitive style, which I think has some appeal. But yeah. Being monotropic, I tend to lose track of things which have blocked out of my attention. And my attention is liable to be captured by things, by external factors. Patrick Dwyer has written a really good piece on this, revisiting monotropism. I think he sort of downplays how much this was already there in Urandina's work, but um, he expresses very clearly how the same tendencies which leads to autistic thinking makes sense when you're thinking about ADHD. And I I think a lot of ADHD is about like not being able to fully access flow states. So you're liable to keep on jumping from one thing to another, but there's a lot more work to be done on this. Yeah. Yeah. I tend to see it too as a sort of circular monotropism, but anyway, yes, there's a lot of work to be done and we're doing our best. eh? Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about the work that still needs to be done in a little bit. But, you know, something that I think has, you know, that I think a lot about is kind of the environment that we grow up in and the impact that it does have on our lives or doesn't. So, Fergus, what what would you say has been the impact um, for you in getting to you know, you, you've really been able to get experiences firsthand with your mom and and when in developing the theory of monotropism um, over the last uh, couple of decades. How, you know, how has that impacted your life? Yeah, so I think that there are quite a few layers to this. One is growing up with a mum was autistic, although she didn't realise it until she'd been working on the idea of monotropism for a long time, meant that I grew up with a parent who understood my own autistic tendencies, even though she didn't understand them in terms of autism to start with. You know, I, I was a weird kid, and I learned early on that that's okay. <laughs> that actually like most of the most interesting people are pretty weird (laughs) and variation is to be welcomed and you know having someone like Dinah from mum made that possible for me and a lot of autistic people don't grow up with that as far as the actual theory goes you know she started working on it around about 91 I guess because she I think that's when she first got Uta Frith's autism the enigma handed to her and you know immediately kind of went hang on is this I think this doesn't need to be that enigmatic. So she kind of started monotropically focusing on on this concept when I was about 13. And 
that had a lot of consequences because one of the things that she did was get to know a lot of autistic people to sort of check if she was on the right lines. Because I think when she was first formulating these ideas, she hadn't knowingly met any autistic people. Probably she had autistic family members, but, you know, we're never going to know because they're gone now. Yeah, so, you know, she went to places where autistic people were, you know, institutionalised. She, she became a support worker for years and years. She made friends with lots of autistic people. So, you know, she, she had this long-standing friendship with this guy, Ferenc Virag, who is a non-speaking autistic artist. She befriended Damien Milton and Larry Arnold and Gwen, obviously. <laughs> so from my teens on, I got to know a lot of autistic people, a lot of knowingly and openly autistic people. Obviously, that, that had a huge impact on me, even though really I didn't recognise myself in descriptions of autism until, I guess, the early 2000s, probably about 2003 or so was when I first started thinking that I was quite likely to be autistic. Like I knew that I was relatively monotropic, but I thought that the way that I tend to jump from one thing to another, like we were talking about with ADHD, was like multitasking. I later realised that actually I'm hopeless at multitasking and jumping from one thing to another is a really bad way of getting things done. Yeah, so... I, yeah, I got to see these ideas being developed. And, you know, Dinah would spend a lot of time talking with friends, most of them autistic, not all of them knowingly, uh, about these ideas. So her friend Mike Lesser, who was co-author of the 2005 autism paper with Wen, was fairly obviously autistic, I think it's fair to say, although as far as I know, he directly got an assessment. And, you know, terribly smart and interesting guy, terribly frustrating at times. But again, like a real kind of major intellectual influence influence on me growing up. Because of my mum's position in, in the autistic community and, you know, her, her thoughts about autism research, quite a lot of the formative influences from my teens on were autistic people. Did you know autism was catching fit? So kind of getting back to monotropism and the theory and all that you know to me theories gain their most importance when they can actually be implied applied to improve the quality of our lives so i'm wondering how can we as autistics use the theory of monotropism to enhance our daily lives whether we have definite passions or not absolutely all too often especially for children i think autism has meant having available attention for one thing at any one time. So connecting with other people, that takes an ability to divide attention. You've got to be able to notice yourself and others, what they might be saying to you. You've got to be able to process what they're saying, what their body is saying, what their facial expressions are saying. So much going on there. And then you've got to connect with your inner senses. So you actually need to notice multiple things too, so that you can regulate emotions. If you're very monotropic, those things are not going to flow in that simple, seemingly easy social way that happens to most people. And what happens when you go to school is that traditionally they've used sort of behavioralism, behavioristic methods to try and change a child's behavior. They haven't traditionally looked at what might be happening for that young person as to why. And they haven't 
I realised that it's not like, yeah, a discipline thing. It's amazing how many people think it's just discipline and, and you've just got to, you got to do this so that the kids learn to do what they're told. It's not about discipline. It's not about doing as you're told. It's about how we learn. It's about how we understand the world and how we put together and process that understanding in everyday life. So to address this, we really do need to to consider cognitive styles and the, and the differences that are happening in our brains. Otherwise, it's a bit like saying to a person in a wheelchair, look, the rest of us walk, so get over it. It's trying to change who we are into becoming more like them, which is really awful. Rather, we need to work with who we are. We need to work with how we learn. We need to understand what motivates us and what connects us. And monotropism for, for autistic people answers all of those questions. From interoception, inner senses, disconnection, to sort of an over-connection with external senses. So when things might be experienced as too bright, too loud, too rough, or as underwhelming and triggering, which causes sensory seeking activities, to needing visual explanations, to needing maps and doing activities with rather than just showing so that we can learn to mirror what's happening. Well, there are so many things that monotropism has an answer for that the traditional ways of working with autism certainly have not at all. They've All they've done is increased trauma, to be honest. So working with our attention, with our interest, rather than taking it away, and that's something that's so, so awful. Sometimes at a school I've seen a, a teacher say, you do your maths first, then you can have your iPad. It's as if uh, they, they haven't recognised or realised that the iPad might be the way through to doing your maths successfully. It's, it's working with who we are and with our interests rather than taking something away and then giving it as a reward. This isn't, it's not about trying to sort of motivate through, you'll get that if you do this. I'm not made that way. I get there by working with all of who I am and that's what's been missed. Monotropism absolutely plugs that hole. We are not allistic. We are autistic and we need this recognised and we need appropriate communication put in place rather than others kind of insisting that we need to be like them, that, that there is some kind of normal. People talk about neurodiversity and there's an acceptance that that just means all brains are different, but they're not quite catching on, I don't think, to what it means to be neurodivergent, to sort of diverge away from that bigger hole, which has all sorts of holes within it as well. And, and therefore, I need who I am to be worked with and understood and walked alongside with, not somebody to come from, from outside and tell me, no, you are this and you have to be that, because then everything will function properly. It won't, because you can't make a person in a wheelchair get up and walk. They're not, their legs don't work that way. You know, it's silly. Anyway, I, I diverge. Fergie might have something to add to that. Yeah, I mean, there's this, this huge problem that the way that people are taught about autism is as a series of deficits. You know, the, the big autism theories are theories of what's wrong with autistic people. The official definitions of autism are all about deficits, you know, social communication impairments and all of this kind of thing. I mean, there are two things that are wrong with that. One is that it 
doesn't actually explain very much about autistic experiences. So, you know, however much you study the DSM criteria for autism, it's not going to allow you to understand what an autistic person that you know is going through. And the same goes for things like theory of mind deficit, theory of autism, you know, executive dysfunction. Like it, it can be a useful idea, but as a theory of autism, it just doesn't tell you very much. Whereas monotropism allows people to make sense of autistic experience, and it does it in a way which is not pathologizing, it's not deficit-based. Part of the value of the idea of the theory is that it's got the potential to displace these bad explanations of autism, these, these bad stories of autism that people are told. And yeah, it makes sense of our experiences, the barriers we face, the difficulties we face. And by doing that, it allows people to remove some of those difficulties and make sense of the barriers. It helps people to find strategies for working with autistic brains rather than like just trying to make them less autistic, which is never going to work and is a major source of trauma for a lot of autistic people. Something that kind of the both of you um, touched on just now, I think I wanted to discuss, and I think it's related to intentions of autistic people. I think to your point when that people don't understand about neurodivergent, the neurodivergent experience, and also with a lot of this, you know, the things like disorders and things like that, that type of language makes, I think, allistic people think that we have intentions that don't exist. Like, how much is, uh, do you see is that language as a part of this miseducation, I guess? Essentially, when are we going to get to the point where non-autistic people are going to realize that there are not any, like, hidden intentions that, that are not being ex expressed. Yeah, no, totally. There's still that kind of myth around that we can somehow unlock the autistic person and get the non-autistic person out, you know, get the normal out of them. And it's really distressing. I mean, the messages that autistic children are being given all the time are, as Fripper said, so traumatic. Trying to make round pegs fit square holes all the time, and we're not made that shape. We don't fit. And the more hammering you push down on us, the more misshaped we become. It's awful. And I've worked with adults a lot that are, I mean, there's so much trauma from the way that they've grown up. All the words they've heard, and people speak in front of us and talk about, in front of the kids, you know, just, you know, yeah, he's not good at this and you can't do that, or she's hopeless at such and such. And that happens to ordinary kids, if there is such a thing as an ordinary kid. But it's awful for autistic children when there is never any recourse to be any other than who they are. So working with who you are, starting from that spot, is the only place to go. And hopefully with valuing and respect and mutual understanding as you get to know us, which people will take the time to know us. And there are lots of autistic people who don't talk. It doesn't mean they don't have thoughts. It doesn't mean they don't have dreams. They absolutely do. It's just they may not be conveyed through language you know i think talk is cheap really anybody can do that but being able to communicate you've got to use a light rider or you know an ipad some other assistive type technology that takes courage and patience because it's a huge it's a very 
is huge. It's an incredible thing to be able to do. And if you happen to have a kind of sort of spasticity in your body or other other issues which are comorbid, as in go together with being autistic, and you can't quite control some of your, your movements, so you've got to lie down a lot. Or you know, I, I have friends that this is happening for them, so they need they need a supportive person that hand on their shoulder or, or wear a hat or whatever it is to help them be able to focus so they can type out a message. But who are we to say that there's only one way to be? It's ridiculous. I mean. The, the world is full of variety. I had a fish tank of tropical fish. The fish tank got broken. And the water all spilled out into the carpets. It was a big mess. But we had swordfish. And we had, we had a male swordfish. Lots of fish died. We rescued a few. We put this one male swordfish into a tank. And people who know anything about tropical fish will probably know what I'm going to say. But that swordfish became a female on its own and gave birth. It, it had babies. And it was amazing. I thought it was amazing. <laughs> We're always adapting. People adapt all the time. But we need the right circumstances, the right accommodations, the right environment. And with lots of autistic people suffering from all sorts of sensory things, etc., it's very difficult to live in the world where you can't be who you are. I'm going on a bit. Sorry, Doug. I'm mm. not really sorry. Thank you for the opportunity. Don't be sorry at all for uh, <laughs> when... <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Fergus, you were touching a little bit earlier on research relating to monotropism and and the website monotropism.org kind of talks about all of the wonderful research that has been done up to this point by lots of different people. So I'm wondering, are there maybe, you know, what are some areas or maybe different contexts relating to monotropism that there hasn't been much research on? that you would like to see in the future a lot more focus on the on, on research in these areas? Oh, I mean, there's a lot. The thing is that there's been a little bit of research on a lot of areas, but there's so much space for so much more. The connection with ADHD, we talked about this a bit earlier, has just about started to be researched. It does look like ADHDers are more monotropic than the rest of the population, but fully explaining why monotropism might manifest as autism in some people and ADHD in others is a whole research project of its own. People have looked a bit at identity formation and the role of monotropism in that and the presentation of the self. Kieran Rose and Amy Pearson talked about this in a, a recent paper on the sort of conceptualising the idea of masking. And I think, yeah, you know, having a mind that tends to focus on a small number of things is going to have profound effects on how your identity develops. The whole area of mental health and the relationship between monotropism and trauma requires so much more attention. You know, it, it's often said that the way that we understand autism, really we're understanding traumatised autistic people. There's so much overlap between what's seen as signs of autism and what's seen as signs of trauma. And could this be because monotropic minds are more prone to trauma responses? Or is it just because autistic people are less likely to have strong connections with those around them? And that's a major protective thing against suffering from the after effects of trauma. Right? If you go to a traumatic event and other people are there to validate your experiences, then you're much less likely to develop long-term post-traumatic stress responses. 
And of course, autistic people have a lot of what's sometimes called sensory trauma, right? Where we experience things as being intensely uncomfortable or painful or overwhelming. And other people are like, what are you talking about? It's not even that loud. Which is, you know, deeply invalidating. So what exactly is happening there? Like, what's the whole story there? And, you know, everything about autism and the things that need research really ought to at least have the idea of monotropism somewhere in the background. And, of course, we've had decades of autism research, which is mostly not at all helpful, which is focused on genetic research, biological research. Like, I'm not saying there shouldn't be biological research, and actually I have some hope that sooner or later we'll have research on autistic brains, which tells us something useful. A lot of people don't have that hope. They think that that's a whole dead end and it's only ever going to harm autistic people. I'm slightly more optimistic than that. But, you know, what the relationship between autism and mental health, autism and sleep, what are so, so many community priorities have just not had anywhere close to adequate research. And I do think that part of the reason why the research that has happened hasn't got further is because they haven't, for the most part, been working with an adequate theory of autism. Like, they're trying to make sense of all these phenomena without a unifying theory to ground it all. And not listening to autistic people. Yeah, like, so much much of the, actually, the better autism research, autistic people respond to, like, yeah, you could have just asked us. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Why'd you spend so much time on that? Just give me a call. <laughs> well, don't call me. Text me or email me. Don't never call me. But uh... <laughs> at least text me first. You can't say <laughs> well, it's it's been an absolute privilege to have the two of you join me today. Thanks so much. I greatly encourage people to visit monotropism.org, and I know. People have different beliefs on life and things like that, but I completely agree with you when the Dinah, it was not too far away today and made this conversation possible. So thank you to the three of you today. (laughs) Thank you. That's lovely. Thanks so much to Wen and Fergus for the conversation. To learn more about monotropism, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides extraordinary support to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our customized coaching? If this is something that you're interested in, then please visit autismpersonalcoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.